This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what do you need to do to get there? To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Jeremy Barnhart. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Jeremy is co-owner and VP of franchise development of, of at rather Apex Fun Run. Well, that was a challenge to get out. Apex Fun Run. We're going to talk about that business that he co-founded. Uh, but he has a background in accounting and finance and a variety of other business ventures that he's been part of. Apex Fun Run's passion, though, is to help teachers as well as students and schools. The company partners with these schools to raise funds for equipment and other campus needs. The concept incorporates a two-week character building uh, program, a character building and leadership program rather, and it culminates in a student run that raises donations for that school. So students ask people they know to pledge money for each completed lap, could be between 26 or 36 laps or whatever. Um, and so young and enthusiastic Apex staff members then lead the program and all the students get jerseys and prizes for all the jobs well done. Uh, so Apex Fund Run raises money or more money rather for schools than any other fundraising activity that you've all heard about and been part of, I'm sure, of your parents or know people who have kids. And they average about $23,000 for each of these fundraising events. And I, if I understand it right, 10% of it goes to the teacher. Is that right, Jeremy? That's right. Yeah. So Jeremy and his wife live in Scottsdale, Arizona. That's where he's chatting with us uh, or from where he's chatting with us today. They have three sons and they keep busy with their uh, different athletic activities. And so in today's episode, we're going to chat with Jeremy about his entrepreneurial journey. He came from the corporate world as I did to now having this business, having co-founded this business. So we'll talk about that interesting journey and we'll focus in on franchising. We'll look at it. We'll flip back and forth from the perspective of someone uh, who might be listening, who's looking at investing in a franchise and also the other perspective as I've been on both sides, which is looking at perhaps you have a business that you're thinking about offering franchises for. So we'll go back and forth of it, but we're going to focus on this topic of franchising after we understand Jeremy's entrepreneurial journey. So once again, Jeremy Barnhart, welcome to the show. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, so let's get started back. Uh, usually I like to start around college time. If I got the research right, you majored, got a bachelor's in accounting and finance, right? That is correct. And so back then was that, and then you ended up working for Deloitte, one of the big, big firms in audits, if I got that right. Is that what you thought you would do for a career back then in college? 
Yeah, I had a pretty specific plan. Uh, in high school, I remember we had to write a, a report in English class as to what we wanted to do as a career path. And I had a family friend who had gone to the same undergrad that uh, that I ultimately went to, who went into the big eight at the time, uh, yep. accounting. And I saw the the you know the quick trajectory she had, the money she made, and and you know it always came easy to me. And so I thought, okay, that's the path I'm going to take. I'm going to you know get accounting finance majors, get my MBA, you know, work for a big firm, make partner quickly. And now that, that was kind of the plan. And, uh, that was, that was kind of where I went. I, I got my undergrad. I threw, through help with the firm was able to do MBA at Kellogg there at Northwestern in Chicago, where I was at, uh, made partner in 10 years. I uh, was a partner for about six more years, six or seven more years. And then just finally hit the point where I was like, why am I doing this when I don't really enjoy it? Uh, you sort of sell your soul to the firm. I was traveling every month for board meetings and uh, worked like a dog and really uh, started to see some of my more uh, more senior partners that were basically absentee parents and their kids were kind of growing up to be, you know, riffraff, so to speak. And uh, I decided, you know what, I'm not interested in having that be my, my story. I'm not really loving what I do. I was lucky and blessed to have made a good amount of money. Uh, and I decided to retire that uh, I wanted to be able to focus on my on my children and being a good parent. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so lots there that you've shared that, that had always been my observation, having worked with the, the big eight back then I was in a software career and we partnered a lot on, on those kind of projects, but it seemed to me like the term partner meant also you were married to the firm and, and that was the expectation as certainly is that you had to give everything to the firm, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So 16 years. And so you say retire. So what age were you at then more or less when we're talking about you made this decision to quote unquote retire? Uh, I believe I was 38 at the time and I had made enough money between the firm and uh, real estate development projects that I was I was in a good enough position that I that I could retire and, and really manage my funds appropriately and, and be able to have have a good lifestyle. Uh, and then the real estate market crash hit <laughs> and I and I lost more money than I thought was actually possible to lose considering I didn't feel like I had aggressive uh, investments, didn't feel like I was highly leveraged, but uh, I just got crushed. Okay. So is that then what leads you to starting the first business in 2006 or tell me about that? Well, that yeah, was before so, the crash. So 2006, before the crash. AJ so, Biz, so, is that the real estate thing or tell me it, about that? It is. That's okay. right. So when I retired, okay. I, I'd had clients of all shapes and sizes, large public companies. I'd done mergers and acquisitions. I'd done IPOs, had a lot of real estate development clients here in Arizona. And so I knew enough to be clearly dangerous. Uh, <laughs> and so I started a development company and built some spec homes, developed some land because, you know, it was so enticing at the time. And I thought, oh, you know, I can really leverage my uh, investment money and be able to continue to grow that portfolio. Uh, and little did I know that I was uh, going down a bad, bad path that uh, I paid the price for. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then you did you get out of the real estate business and how it just seems like it doesn't have any relationship to then ending up with Apex Fund Run. So tell us about that transition and, and the idea. I know you have a partner, Scott's your partner there, but tell us about that. 
Yeah, so so we were uh, going down the path. I had a variety of a variety of businesses. I've always sort of had the entrepreneurial bug and had a partner with all of those. Uh, and we had gotten to the point where my wife was on the PTO at the kids' school, and mm. uh, and she because we had I had been on the board of most organizations in town, and she had been the marketing director at Deloitte as well before she became a stay at home mom. You know, we knew lots of people, and so they they were uh, trying to entice her to be the chair of the fundraising committee for the kids' school because they knew we knew a lot of people. And uh, she said, you know what? The only way I'm going to be the chair is if I can do fundraising my way. And they said, okay, well, what's that? She said, well, I'm done selling products. We've all done product-based fundraisers. We bought cookie dough and we bought candy bars and butter braids, all those unhealthy products. And she said, I'm done selling unhealthy products because we do all the work. We raise almost no money and it's just not healthy. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, well, what do you want to do? She said, well, I want to do something that's fitness focused. And this was obviously before we'd started the company. And uh, our oldest of our three boys is a junior in high school, always been a big runner. He's varsity track and cross country and done a lot of triathlons. And so back then she said, well, I want to try to do a triathlon as a fundraiser. But she soon realized that it was going to be difficult to find a location that would work. It was going to take some potentially some permits, would require a lot of volunteers, which are pretty hard to come by, and it was going to be difficult to monetize and make it a profitable fundraiser. So we were looking for a, a healthy base fundraiser. At the same time, my business partner Scott's wife, Amy, was starting her first day as a first grade teacher. And on her way home from school on that first day, she had to stop and buy about four or $500 worth of supplies for her classroom which is the story of teachers all over America. I mean, right. the, the average elementary school teacher in America spends $600 every year on supplies. And uh, when she got home, Scott is the typical spouse said, uh, you're getting reimbursed for that, right? <laughs> and she said, no, you know, no. The, with, with the budget cuts, they, they don't have the money. And so he said, well, that's crazy. You know, what's the school do to help? She said, well, you know, they do some product-based fundraisers, but it doesn't raise much money. And that money doesn't usually make its way to a to individual teacher. And so, so he was looking for a solution and I was looking for a solution and, and uh, Apex Fund Run came to be. You know, we started looking at the industry and we saw that fundraising had not changed in the last 30, 40, 50 years, that it was still primarily product-based. And those product-based fundraisers weren't helping teachers, weren't really benefiting students and really weren't raising much money. And those were the three core things that we wanted to create with Apex Fund Run. And so, so Scott, with his creative genius, kind of came up with the original program. Uh, we originally tested it at Amy School. His wife is a teacher and then brought it to our kids' school and uh, decided that we could make this into a nationally branded business. And now, you know, five, six years later, we've got 85 franchises in 23 states. We raise about $2 million every two weeks. Uh, and we've got now five different program offerings that allow our franchisees to be a one-stop shop for fundraising. We can help elementary schools, middle schools, high school teams, local community organizations, and we're making an amazing impact around the world. Yeah, fantastic story. So Scott was your partner in the real estate business as well. Did I get that right? No, no, I had a separate. No, okay. So, so at the time that we started this, I basically just divested myself of everything with my with my other old partner, and and Scott and I started Apex Fund Run, uh, and rolled from there. And you guys are partners in this business. That's right. So tell us about that. You had worked with partners before. I'm always interested in how people work with partners and why they work with partners versus going on their own. I'm the type of person, for example, that prefers working in partnership, but it can be a challenge, right? And and it takes a lot to making a partnership work. Why does it work for you guys? 
Well, I, I would not ideally recommend it for people either, unless it's something that really is a benefit because it, it's a marriage and, and marriages take work and so do partnerships with businesses. I think the key to a partnership is if you b- bring different things to the table. Okay. So, so for me, I understand business. I understand how to grow business, how to really make people profitable with business. And I understand franchising as well. Scott was a, a younger guy who also had his uh, MBA, who was very creative. So he, he comes up with great ideas, but didn't necessarily know how to implement those ideas. And so together we make a great dynamic duo. He can come up with great creative ideas and then collectively we turn it into a business and, and blow it up across the country. And so, so we really focus on our strengths. I focus on growing the business and managing managing franchisees while he focuses on the creative. And every year we've got different themes, different curriculums, different prizes, uh, and he's more of a web guy as well. And so together we really uh, have a great business along with my wife, who's our national sales and marketing director, and then our, our team of support people. We've got quality control, we've got admin, we've got I, IT teams, we've got distributions, we've we've got it all at this point. But, uh, but he and I and my wife actually really sort of started it from our bootstraps. Yeah. I have found that you touched on something. I've found that to make partnerships work well, you need to have those conversations early on about who's going to play what role, what are our boundaries, who's doing what, so that you have that understanding going in. Is that something you guys spent uh, any amount of time on or did it just come naturally? Uh, we honestly did not spend as much time on it as we probably should have. Um, like any, you know, typical entrepreneurial people, you sort of go, 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 and then sort of look back to the details. So, so we took a lot longer to actually have a formal operating agreement than we probably should, even though we, you know, would have needed it to protect both of us. Um, but we really were, were kind of all go getters. And so we really just hit the ground running and had our tasks and he was focusing on creating the, the web and theme stuff that we have now that are really sophisticated. I was focused on writing franchise agreements and franchise disclosure documents and working on building up, finding franchisees and how to make the business profitable. And and we really just kind of put our heads down and plowed forward, which is why we had such immediate success and have now grown so rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that that happens a lot. Not what I would recommend to people, but that are listening, but this is what happens. You know, I often what I love about it is you didn't let anything kind of create a lot of noise that delayed you in taking action. And so that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, Lisa dumped in and basically took us to a hundred schools in the Phoenix market where we're headquartered in within two years. So, so we really kind of spent a lot of time focusing on building the systems, creating a nice system that was uh, easily franchisable. Um, and she focused on just selling to really master the program and, and really validate it for us. Yeah. So Jeremy, from day one, did you see this as something you would franchise? I really did. Uh, I was, I've, I always sort of have that big picture mentality. And so I felt like this was something that was truly needed all over America. I mean, fundraising is necessary for schools and organizations all over America and, and they struggle with it. And I saw there was really a lack of leadership and fitness awareness at, at a younger ages for children in elementary schools. Many budget cuts create schools eliminating physical education and, and many schools are teaching to a test. So they don't really teach any leadership skills or common courtesies. And so I saw just a huge gap there that I knew everyone across America needed. And I felt like if we could create a system, the the best way to share it would be franchising because it's a community-based business. And so I wanted local business owners who cared about their community, who, you know, cared about the schools and their community and the students in those schools, because they're going to do a better job protecting our brand than, than a group of employees around America. 
Yeah, yeah, that's like such a great point. Obviously, there's several different reasons why typically we consider franchising for our concept. One is the obvious financial benefit, which is it's a faster way typically to grow because you're leveraging the franchisee's capital to expand and grow. But you touch on a key component that we often leave out, which is this is a way of getting people who are obviously involved and engaged, they have skin in the game because they're the business owner of that franchise to continue to perpetuate the real passion and meaning and and um, emphasis behind the whole idea of the business. Absolutely. They're going to care a lot more than an employee will. Yeah. All right. So that was the plan from the start. Um, you had how many? So was it just you operating out of the Arizona area before you started offering units? I'm trying to get a feel for how how far along were you? What did, uh, you know, without sharing specifics, but profitability look like? Did you have X number of units that were company owned before you started franchising? When when did you feel like, all right, now we're ready to sell our first franchise? Yeah, we were really only probably a year and a half in before we did that because we built up Arizona so quickly. We then also launched a team in Dallas and a team in San Antonio to make sure that it wasn't just an Arizona thing. Um, but it but it blew up so quickly and grew so virally, and we just worked so hard on creating the systems that then we knew that it validated well uh, and immediately started franchising. And so we we doubled and tripled every year. We went from you know we and we then sold our you know Arizona market and the Dallas and San Antonio markets to franchisees okay. uh, so that we could really focus on being a franchisor. We wanted to make sure we were focusing on providing the best service and training and support for their growth as opposed to being distracted by you know our business versus their business. And so we yeah. felt like it was a it was an important move. And so we we ramped up very quickly as I mentioned. So just in you know in four three and a half, four years we've gone from zero to eighty five units in twenty three states. Yeah, pretty impressive. So a couple of questions there and you touched on something that I think is is an important takeaway that I've gotten as advice as I've considered franchising a couple of different concepts. And that is that we we miss, if we haven't done it before, that the franchising is a separate business on its own. And you touched on a key thing that to try to do both, in other words, operate your company-owned units, for example, and operate the franchise is is hard to do both things. That's been your experience, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a natural conflict of interest. I mean, in, in a way, it's uh, it gives you you know additional validation that other franchisees know that you know what they're going through and that you're you know on the same page. But it's also a big distraction, and so we felt like we we had we had proven the model out. We knew how to operate effectively. We had shown how to grow it very rapidly, and that we were best served to to really focus on helping our franchisees be successful. And and that's the beauty of franchising from a franchisee perspective is you're buying into a proven model, a proven system with with training and support and all the things necessary for you to have a relatively rapid ramp up and successful business as opposed to starting something on your own, which, you know, more than half of those fail within the first couple of years. Yeah. How, what do you think was key to attracting those initial franchisees who you had nothing to show as far as much success? What, what did you look for and what do you think was the key that signed those initial franchisees up? Well, I think we did have a lot of success to show them actually, but you know, by hitting a hundred schools in the second year, we had raised in that second year alone, we raised $2 million for elementary schools. Yeah, in Arizona. Fair, Jeremy, but you didn't yeah. have units that you could point to to say, here, call John and he's a sure, reference and call sure. Susie. And, and so, yeah. because that's part of, I mean, as I've gone through it and as I advise clients, that's one of the due diligence points that I always recommend for a franchise. 
But for a young franchise, you simply don't have that. That doesn't mean it isn't a good opportunity. So how did you manage getting through that phase early on? Um, was it what you're alluding to, which is, look, we have proven this because we've been doing it. Is that what you're saying? I think many of our initial franchisees came to us because of what we were doing and they had seen and heard of us okay. because it's such a fun, rewarding business. Our, our, our fundraising is unique and was especially unique when we started in the fact that our technology drives a lot of it. We've got mm -hmm. a website where every participant gets a unique access code to create their own page on our site. They can customize it with pictures and videos and then utilize our share wizard technology where they can then send out emails, text messages, Facebook and Twitter messages to friends and family all over the world. And so we saw people who were who were pledging their their niece or nephew, you know, they they lived in California but they were pledging their niece or nephew who lived here in Arizona and they thought, "Wow, this is amazing. This seems like such a fun way to fundraise and it's activity-based as opposed to selling some garbage product or putting your hand out asking for something." And so initially our first franchisees were people who were either parents who saw that or or, you know, family members of people who had pledged who saw the value and said, we, we need this in our community. I mean, it, it's such a passion business because there's a rare opportunity to have a business where you're making a positive impact on, on children's lives while making a living at the same time. And then people just saw the, saw that and were excited about the opportunity to share it in their communities. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, what better way to build a business than by that word of mouth, if you will. Um, did you limit initially geographically where you first offered franchise or did you spread nationwide? Tell us about that. So I initially built territories based on our first program of our five, uh, which allowed you to serve a certain demographic of schools. And so I so I built exclusive zip code territories with a certain number of schools in them. Uh, and then as we continued to build additional product offerings, we then expanded those territories based on those additional offerings that we had. And so now I've got the entire country mapped out with exclusive zip codes that allow people to have those elementary, middle school, high school teams and community organizations in those exclusive zip codes. Yeah. I always see that as a challenge because you can get yourself spread too thin early on if you don't focus geographically because you have to offer these people support and all of that kind of stuff. So um, that's why I was asking that question. Just curious as to how you handled that. Yeah, the beauty was is that we sold out sold out the West Coast really quickly, almost mm. based on word of mouth because of the right. because of the technology and people talking about it because there was nothing like it. And so so PTO parents were talking to their friends all over the country, and teachers were talking to their friends because of the fact that the teachers have a benefit from it unlike any other. And so so we we sold out Arizona, California, Nevada, you know, very quickly, and then we sort of had to transition to be able to then start working our way east. And so at that point, I, I allowed in. Brokers. Uh, there are franchise brokers all over America sure. who try to match up people with prospective businesses. And so that was what really allowed us to then find people in, you know, Chicago and Indianapolis and Connecticut and, you know, all over the Midwest and the East Coast where we're at now. Yeah, that makes sense. This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what do you need to do to get there? Perhaps you need help understanding and overcoming your fears. 
Maybe you're not entirely sure about what it really takes to be ready, willing, and able to become your own boss. My online program is about helping you take the first critical steps towards realizing your dreams of entrepreneurship. I will take you step-by-step through a process that will help you determine if you are in fact ready to be your own boss and specifically identify what you need to do next. To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. I want to go back to, as I read in the bio, the 10% that goes to the teachers. Are there stipulations on what they can use that money for, or is it completely up to them? Nope, completely up to them. The goal was to really help them have some skin in the game and help them with those those supplies that they come out of pocket for. Because we felt like if they had a direct benefit, they're going to, you know, it's a top-down approach. If they endorse the program and support the program, they're going to have a positive attitude about it. And therefore, the parents and the kids will have a positive attitude about it. And in theory, the money from a fundraiser to school should be working its way to a classroom anyway. And so so we felt like that was an important piece to get them engaged, to get them supportive. And, and now, you know, teachers support and endorse our program all over America, unlike any other. Yeah. All right. I want to flip for a moment, looking at it from a potential franchisee perspective. We've been going kind of back and forth, but mostly talking about it, looking from it, franchising your business concept. From a franchisee perspective, what are some tips you have for people to go about evaluating a franchise? Uh, obviously, it's it's important to do your research. Um, I think the key thing is really to do research about yourself even before you begin looking outward. Uh, I think it's important for people to recognize their strengths, their weaknesses, their passions. Uh, I believe that to be successful in a business, you need to be passionate about it. You know, if it, I I never understand the people who can you know just buy a McDonald's and and you know nobody's that passionate about making people fat with hamburgers. You know, I mean. I feel like you've got to have a business that you care about that gets you up every morning. And so I think people have to do that self-evaluation to say, okay, what is it that drives me? What makes me excited? What am I passionate about? And then also recognizing their strengths and their weaknesses. You know, that's a hard thing to be able to recognize what you're good at and what you're not good at. But you need to also then figure that out so you can find a business that not only aligns with your passions, but also aligns with your strengths. Many times as an entrepreneur, you think you can do it all, but the reality is you can't. And so you've got to play to your strengths and outsource the rest. And you just can't start looking at businesses that one are concepts that, you know, you're really not that excited about, or that are going to require you to do things that you're not that good at. Yeah. So using your franchise as an example, who's a good fit? Describe some of the characteristics of someone or a couple who is a good fit for being a franchisee of Apex Fund Run. Our business really is a passion business, so we're looking for people who have a passion for community, for for kids and leadership and fitness, and who are also very social. This is an outgoing marketing, networking type of a business because the reality is anyone that you talk to is a potential client. People either have children, and if they have those children, they go to school somewhere, elementary, middle, high school, or college, and we can help them with all their fundraising needs. Or even if they don't have children, they've probably got that pet nonprofit that they work with. Could be their local church, could be a local children's hospital, and we can help them all with fundraising. And so our franchisees are people who just who are just conversational, who are likable, who who talk to people and network and, and are looking to genuinely help their community. Yeah. And so so it's not necessarily that they have to have a specific background or business uh, expertise. It's really the best thing is for passionate, personable folks. 
Yeah. I think the thing that's so important about that, Jeremy, is what I find when I consult with my clients sometimes that are looking at franchises is they get they they get misguided by looking at, oh, this would be profitable or this would work well in my community. And they forget, well, would this work for you and exactly. for your family? Right. Yep. Uh, and people just overlook that. Now, uh, let me ask, is this typically your franchisees? Is this their primary business and source of income or is it a side business? And I don't say that negatively, obviously, but how does this typically fall in for people? Is this what they're doing exclusively or is it one of several businesses or sources of income? No, it's generally there. It's an owner-operated business where they're full-time committed to it, and uh, and because we've got so many different revenue streams and so many potential clients in any market, it can be a very very profitable business and truly has probably a better ROI than just about any other franchise out there. I we, we've touched on it already, so I don't mean to repeat the question, but what do you think? And let's let's not talk about just you and your franchise. Generally speaking, what have you found makes for a good franchisee? It really is someone who is willing to follow a system. Uh, if you're somebody who likes to go rogue, franchising is probably not right for you because the beauty of franchising, again, is a proven system. I mean, with our program, we've got 250-page training manual and videos and, and all sorts of training support. And so if you're someone who can follow a system, who's willing to work hard to follow that system, generally those systems are going to work. But if you're somebody who loves to sort of challenge everything, franchising might not be for you because it's, it's really, in theory, a proven system. Now, granted, we realize we're not perfect. We're humble and that there are things that some of our really great franchisees have come up with great ideas that we have then ultimately you know, put in, into action for everyone. But to be a successful franchisee, you need to, in, in certain ways, be a little bit of a good soldier to say, hey, listen, you tell me what to do. I'm going to take that and I'm going to make it successful in my market as opposed to trying to put your own mark on it. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's that's probably, that all ties into what you had talked about a moment ago, which is assessing what you really want and what you really are looking for. And I, I kind of put it on a scale. You're either at one extreme where you're entrepreneurial and you don't want anybody having any control or dictation of what you do. And then the other extreme, which is I, I want to be an employee, right? And I think a franchisee maybe lies somewhere in between those two extremes. You're absolutely right. It, it is a fine balance. And I tell that to my franchisees all the time that we know you're big boys and girls and you bought a business and you own a business and we want you to just follow the system and run with it. But you know, there's also the balance of that we want you to be successful. So if you're not following the system or if you're not doing as well, we're going to step in. And it's not just to be big brother and look over your shoulder and pester you. It's really the fact that franchising is a win-win, lose-lose scenario. You know, If you're not having success, then neither are we. We only succeed if you generate royal and so, so it is that fine balance of letting them do their thing and run their business, but also making sure they're successful. Agreed. All right. I'd like to ask you about misconceptions and I want to ask it from two sides. Let's first tackle it from, I'm a business owner. I'm looking at or preparing to franchise my concept. What would you say is one of the, or a couple of the misconceptions that business owners have about going down the franchising route? Uh, I would say one of the misconceptions, um, let me think about that one. I was sort of thinking about it the other way. Yeah, I want to talk about it both ways. And, yeah. and I think one of them we may have already touched on, Jeremy, which is the whole, it's a separate business. I find that to be a misconception that people think they can do it at the same time that they're still operating their business. Uh, the other one I find is often as people start thinking about franchising before they've even got their systems really fleshed out and proven 
So I've seen that as, as an issue as well. But what else have you faced that you would have thought, gosh, I, we, we tackled it, but I didn't expect this running a franchise? Well, I think that's a great point, Henry. I think it's the fact that you have to have great systems and provide great support as opposed to just sort of you've got an idea and you hand it off to people and they run with it. I think that is that is a misconception. I think one of the other misconceptions is 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 and maybe it's not, maybe it's just something I experienced is is how difficult it really is to get people to franchise. Um, you know, you you can if you're entrepreneurial and you under you started a business and have an idea, you think, well, gosh, why wouldn't everybody want to do this? Don't they see how great it is to have your own business and and have all this success. When in reality, many times people who are franchising have never owned their own business, have never been self-employed. They're used to a paycheck every two weeks. And to get someone to utilize their either their their savings or to take out a loan to start a new business and now have to sort of go with the eat what you kill mentality of you know how they get paid is a big, big jump for people. Mm -hmm. And it's much more difficult to get people to cross the cross the finish line when it comes to buying a franchise than I think many people believe. I think they think on the surface, well, of course people want to do this. I did it. Makes sense for me. But the reality is, is we have to recognize not everybody's us, you know, we're, we're, we're individuals and, and we have to recognize that people have different risk tolerances, different passions, and, and it's difficult. It's hard time from certain times with people that I talk to as prospects thinking, are you seriously not going to do this? You're really going to, you know, you just got, you know, laid off at your job and you're now going to go take another job where you don't like your boss. You don't like your commute and you're just waiting for the next you know, downsizing. Uh, you're going to seriously do that instead of franchising. But you know, it's, it's hard. Everybody's got their own decisions to make. Yeah, yeah, that's a great insight. It's such I think it takes patience and understanding that, like you said, even though it's all laid out before them and they've they've done all the vetting and all and it all makes sense, but still we forget, like you said, because often it's first time business owners that they really haven't overcome that fear hurdle of actually taking this leap of faith and becoming a business owner. Yep. All right. So from the flip side, as a franchisee, what are, and we touched on uh, from a misconception perspective, we touched on one, which is this idea that you need to follow a system and be that type of person and be prepared for that. What else do you see as a misconception of people coming in and interested in being a franchisee or after the fact for that matter? Well, I think it is that misunderstanding or misconception of of what franchising really is, what that relationship is between a franchisor and a franchisee, and what types of businesses or franchises. I mean, we're the only fundraising franchise in the world. So so we've got that issue that nobody else does what we do. And when people look into franchising, they see traditional franchises with bricks and mortar, restaurants, cleaning services, elder care facilities. They don't necessarily realize that there's 3,800 franchises out there and just about anything you can think of, there's probably a franchise for it. And so I think there's a misconception of what types of businesses are franchises when when you're thinking about the potential of it. And then also sort of the misconception of what exactly does that relationship look like? Is it, you know, somebody who's constantly checking in on me and looking over my shoulder or, or is it somebody who's just going to hand me something and I'm responsible for making it successful? I think they just don't fully understand all the relationships that go into it. And, and granted of those 3,800 franchises, there's some of both of those on both extremes, but ideally you want something where it is truly a partnership where you're going to get the training you need, the support you need, but also the flexibility and and autonomy to run the business the way you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Um, I want to wrap it up then now on, as far as apex fund run, 
I want to ask you for the the brief elevator pitch, but but specifically what I want to ask to lead to that is what what would you say is the biggest value that you offer a franchisee? Well, I think we offer a, a lot of value in terms of having a great system, but not only that, we reinvent ourselves every year for our franchisees. We create new themes, new curriculum, new prizes, so they don't have to be creative. We come up with all of that for them and train them on how to implement all the programs on a year-over-year basis so they can really focus on on signing clients and serving those clients to their utmost as opposed to having to worry about the nuts and bolts of how to actually do the business uh, from a creative perspective. And so, so we're creating great great systems, great technologies that allow them to, to really serve their communities in a positive way. Okay. Understood. Jeremy, what do you enjoy most or better said, what do you love most about what you do today? Well, I really love the impact that we are having on on students and schools and organizations all over America. Uh, we get letters and emails during the school year from parents that would bring you to tears over the impact that we've had on their children from a positive perspective, because we're going into elementary schools, letting students know that they matter, that they have value, that they can do anything they set their mind to, and that even at their age, they can be leaders in their homes and their schools and in their communities. And and these stories are just amazing. I mean, we've turned kids from a, from a bad direction to a positive direction. Uh, we've really helped teachers. We've helped schools raise double or triple what they've ever raised before. And it's just, it's a really feel good story. Uh, we wrote a book last year, actually before Christmas, where we gave it out to all of our franchisees. That was a collective of, of the apex stories because it's, it's really powerful what we do all over America in addition to the fundraising component. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, we'll wrap it up with a couple last questions. I again want to break it up into both or, or both perspectives, and that is a final parting piece of advice or guidance. And I'd like to start with part one from a business owner who's thinking about perhaps or is along the process of franchising my concept. What's the final piece of advice or thought you'd have for that business owner? Uh, I would really think about it and talk to other franchisors before you do it. Don't just jump in. Uh, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, but it's you know can be misleading. Uh, there's nothing that's absolutely easy about franchising. It may seem on the surface like, oh sure, I'll just you know have a bunch of people all over the country do what I do, but like anything, it's a it's it's a challenge because you're whether you're dealing with employees or franchisees, you're dealing with people. You're dealing with emotions. You're dealing with money. And the fact that you are now dealing with people who have invested their hard-earned money into your business gives you a whole different level of you know, pressure or stress to, to help make sure they succeed than necessarily employees do. And so I would say really think about it, do your research, make sure that you do have a system in place that is going to allow people to be supported and, and successful and whether or not it's something that's needed. You know, just because you've got some success in something or an idea doesn't mean that there's a demand for it. So make sure that it is truly something that is filling a need and a demand and do a lot of research. Yep. Yeah, yeah, well said. All right. So from the flip side now, as someone who might be evaluating investing in a franchise business, we've touched on some of the key things, in particular, the most important, I think, which is to evaluate up front, either with the help of the franchisor or franchise brokers. A good franchise broker is really good at helping you with that, with assessing what you're really looking for, what your calling really is, what your passion really is, and hopefully help you find something that really aligns with that. So that's critical, of course. We talked about understanding that you need to be able to follow rules. And so it requires somebody who's in between there and a balance of someone who fits that and making sure you're comfortable with that. 
Is there anything else that comes to mind that you would recommend to someone who's starting that journey of considering a franchise, something I didn't ask already, or just parting piece of advice for that person? Well, I think it's really worth people looking into. Um, uh, you know, it, again, it, as you mentioned, it depends on your personality. Some people love the stability of a job and getting a paycheck every two weeks and potentially benefits and things like that, and, and that's okay. But if you're somebody who's who's not happy with that life, who who feels the stress of being downsized many times, or has a lot of travel or a long commute, or doesn't like their boss and really wants to take control of their destiny, it's a great option because there are lots and lots of franchises out there. There's lots of fun, rewarding businesses that have, you know, not huge investment levels and and quick ramp ups like ours, uh, where you can change your whole trajectory instead of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Go out there, do some research, find something that you can be more excited and passionate about that'll get you up in the morning and love what you're doing and know that you're building equity in a business and something that you can maybe sell down the road or pass to your uh, children as opposed to a job where someday they may come in and say, sorry, you're done. So, so it is a, a great opportunity to, to take a, a moderate level of risk as opposed to just jumping in and starting something from scratch. It gives you a higher level of potential success having a great system. And I'd say just just do some research, think about it, consider it, because otherwise you're going to blink an eye and you're going to have spent 25 or 30 years doing the same thing and you're going to have a hard time retiring because you didn't save enough money as opposed to having maybe had a really rewarding business that gave you the equity to have a great future. Yeah, great points, great points. All right, Jeremy, what would you like our listeners to go online to find out more about you and about Apex Fund Run? They can go to apexfunrun.com. Uh, and learn about all of our product offerings, our franchising opportunities, and and can reach out to me and love to have a conversation with them to see if it might be the right thing for them. Wonderful. And we'll have a link to that if you didn't catch that on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. Jeremy, it's been a very interesting and enlightening conversation. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today and to share your knowledge. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me today, Henry. This is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.